Hello everyone, this is Ivan Oleg Smith with Yoga You Online and I'm very excited to be here today with Ginger Garner, founder of the Professional Yoga Therapy Institute. Ginger is an orthopedic physical therapist and yoga therapist and author of the book Medical Therapeutic Yoga, which is really an impressive in-depth book that combines the practice of yoga and rehabilitative science to create and new methodology for working with yoga in a healthcare setting. Welcome, Ginger. So much, so happy to have you here. Thank you, Eva. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. So you have an incredibly wide-ranging portfolio, more so than I think anyone else I know. You are a woman's health advocate, sports medicine physical therapist athletic trainer, founder of the Professional Yoga Therapy Institute, author of the book Medical Therapeutic Yoga, and creator of the Professional Yoga Therapy Certification for Healthcare Professionals. You are also lead singer in a band <laughs> and the mother of how many kids? Three. Three kids. <laughs> so the question is, do you ever sleep? <laughs> I think the the easy answer is my my spiritual practice, which is intertwined with yoga, and my belief system, which gives me hope and endurance to keep going. That and and yoga, the yoga combination with it, is the only way that I could, uh, you know, exist. So that's the secret. Get, right? get the, the secret sauce. <laughs> yeah, it is. And one of the things I love about your work is the way you approach your profession as a path to social change. Um, you really are a, one of the most fervent advocates for greater attention to women's postpartum care. And you are one of the few PTs who are pointing out that there is not enough awareness of the tremendous toll that birth takes on a woman's body. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of my greatest areas of passion. It's certainly driving what I'm choosing to do um, as, as, like you said, that path to social justice for um, service to the public and the greater good. Um, research that a group of us that I pulled together last year, we presented, um, I took the information to present at, in Cape Town at our World Congress on Physical Therapy. And the realities for women worldwide uh, constitute nothing short of a global maternal health crisis. And it's something that we must pay attention to for, for women, particularly um, in the United States, our uh, maternal mortality, our first day infant death rate, our outcomes are, I won't even say among the poorest, they are the poorest. <laughs> of any developed nation in the world. And for women globally, if you are uh, a woman of color, then you have, your risk of dying in childbirth is four times higher. Um, and, that of, and, and that of your infant is also um, exponentially increased. And when women sustain the world and nurture the next generation, that's unacceptable to me and we have to do something about it. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. 
And and another area that you bring this passion to, I've noticed, is um, the prevention of yoga injuries, which is another big area for you. Um, so how do you see this problem? There was a lot of debate about it a few years back, as we all know. And um, it has since, there's been a few studies showing that yoga injuries are at the same level as what you would expect from other physical activities. However, in your work, you probably see a lot of injuries caused by yoga. I've spent, um, since the early 90s, in the yoga community, studying yoga, being a student of yoga. And I love to learn. So that's taken me to a lot of different areas and studying with different people and being exposed to a lot of people in the community. And, mm -hmm. and I would have to say, yeah, um, more time than should be necessary was spent on treating and helping people with yoga injuries. Uh, and a lot of those were yoga teachers who had been practicing a particular way or, you know, we could identify with a quote certain lineage, um, even though in my book, I really emphasize that the time for that has long since passed. Now it should be just based on, you know, sound science and compassionate uh, delivery of mm -hmm. yoga in a safe setting. Mm -hmm. um, so as time has progressed, I just continue to see those same things. And because technology has improved we are able to do more than we used to be able to do, including identification uh, of injuries in the hip and the pelvis. Um, you know, I've seen equal uh, spinal injuries um, to, um, you know, to the neck, uh, to the spinal nerves, et cetera. So yes, I've seen a lot of those things over the years. And of course, that's, that's the oath that we take is, um, to help people and to first do no harm. And so I want to make sure that that happens across uh, the yoga community, whatever level people are choosing to practice at. Yeah. And as I looked over your writings, one of the areas you particularly focus on is the hip joint. And there's two things I'm really interested in in that respect. One is you note how our understanding of the hip joint has really changed, the understanding the medical science has of the hip joint and how we can prevent hip replacements or hip injuries. Mm -hmm. But you're also having some serious issues with the way we teach yoga and how that affects the hip. Yeah, so. yeah. I like the way you described that. Um, it, I always, exist i think if we care about what we do then there's an embedded sense of urgency to act and improve things so i always live with that and that's what drives me to to do what i do every day and with the hip that's uh, no less important and some of the statistics i think would underscore the importance of why we need to change what we're doing in the hip in yoga prior um to the inclusion of and the use of things like uh, CT scans, even film, plain film, um, and MRAs um, of the hip, not just MRIs, um, we didn't have a whole lot of options for um, addressing the hip in a way that would really change longevity for a person. I joke to people all the time, when I went to PT school, which was over 20 years ago now, it was bursitis, tendonitis, or hip replacement. There really wasn't 
much you could do. Now we could take certain clinical measurements, but so far as what we could do with the hip, it just seemed like a little bit of an enigma because it was, you couldn't really get, get in there. Now we have all different types of things that are available to us to reach the deeper structures of the hip. Uh, I, I do practice women's health, so we do internal work as physical therapists. That gives us access to the pelvis and the hip in a way that we didn't before, so we can really change outcomes and usually do it dramatically in a short period of time. Um, it, it also allows us through things like dry needling and, and other interventions we use in physical therapy to affect the hip. So what underscores the statistics that I was mentioning that underscore our need to change what we're doing in the hip is not just that technology that has, um, that allows us to see, visualize, and touch the hip in a way we couldn't before, but we still are lagging behind, just like in maternal health. And the problem is everyone's, not just, it doesn't belong to the yoga community, it doesn't belong to the healthcare community. And the nice thing about that is, uh, no one's trying to point fingers, right? Like I'm not pointing a finger at the yoga community and saying, if it wasn't for you, there's just really no um, usefulness and utility in that. What we need to do is take some of these statistics and say that this, this, this problem plagues us across the board, but because yoga is, is emphasizing uh, end ranges of motion, that we're more often than not to see those issues crop up, particularly in women, because that's one of the risk factors for hip dysplasia, which can present itself in multiple formats. Mm. So some of those statistics are, uh, that are most concerning to me as an individual, um, as a person, as a person who studies yoga and as uh, a doctor of physical therapy is, it takes on average 2.6 years for a person to be diagnosed mm. from their onset of hip pain, which can, occur in childbirth. Pregnancy is a risk factor for it. Uh, lots of sports um, and certainly yoga can be a risk factor for it. Those things I'll include um, in, the, uh, in the webinar. Um, but 2.6 years is a long time and that's a long amount of time that, to do damage. Mm -hmm. And I've also had several colleagues as well as patients who have ended up probably younger than necessary getting hip replacement, total hip replacements when those are widely thought to be preventable now as long as we can get early intervention. We see these people early, we screen them, uh, and then offer our suggestions as to how they can adapt their movements, which can include yoga or golf or whatever it is that they want to do, mm -hmm. uh, in such a way that it can prevent early aging, early degeneration of the hip. On average, patients see 4.1 healthcare providers before they get to the right one. Mm. And we can do a great deal in the yoga community to say, as if you're a yoga teacher or if you are a yoga therapist, so in the unlicensed fields, you're completely able to um, help us identify those issues early and say to that, that uh, student in your class, you may actually want to go see a pelvic PT or a hip uh, specialist um, in order to be able to rule you can do in class. Going to a server is most difficult, and it's the physical therapist who will actually break things down in a way um, that they can differentially diagnose what's going on. Ginger, Hopefully I'm still connected. Yes, you are. Am I still connected. You okay. are still connected, but we had like a 15-second thing. So if you could repeat from where okay. you said you ought to go see a physical therapist. 
Yeah, a, a physical therapist is going to be the most cost effective for you. It is a way for uh, yoga teachers and yoga therapists in unlicensed uh, fields and practice to say, I, I'm concerned about your movement or some of the pain you've been having or your history. Maybe you should go see a PT. Um, an orthopedist or an orthopedic surgeon is, uh, is a bit of an overkill as most people aren't surgical. So the PT can do a lot to um, avoid surgery, but also uh, prevent injury and get them back into yoga class where they want to be. There are other risk factors out there. Age is obviously a risk factor. Being female is a risk factor. But the fact that people have to go through years of pain mm -hmm. um, and just outright agony sometimes, we can, we can change that in the yeah. yoga community with just a few um, um, pieces of information and knowing some red flags. So tell us uh, about the, the risk factors. You mentioned hip dysplasia. Can you talk more about that? And if there are other areas that are predisposing people for uh, issues that would result in a hip replacement down the road? Knowing what the internal structure or morphology of the hip is is important. Um, the hip has six degrees of freedom. Freedom. It's a multi-axial ball and joint. It has a capsule that is essential to the integrity of the joint itself. It has cartilage, a labrum, also essential to the pressurization of the joint. And if any of those things are interrupted and or you have pre-existing weaknesses in certain muscle groups and motor patterning, Mm -hmm. then those are some of the things that will predispose you to, um, to injury or cause you to go down that path of having a total hip replacement. Mm -hmm. uh, nutrition is also going to be a risk factor. We don't think about it as one at the top of the list, but if someone is regularly consuming things that are biomarkers for inflammation for them as an individual, mm -hmm. that's certainly not going to help them. And when, when I see patients, probably half the time I spend on uh, nutritional education, resource utilization, showing them um, where they can access and how they can access healthier eating. But also the other half is let's look at your movement, let's screen that movement and see what's going on mm -hmm. and then determine how you need to change your yoga postures accordingly because the in internal structure of the joint is going to make a really big difference as to how I might say to them, do warrior one like this, but do warrior two like this, you know, so yeah. your alignment is going to completely change depending on what the screening, um, when I screen someone's hip looks like and what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, um, the things that you say, let's see if I can find a quote here. Um, let's see. Um, you state no yoga posture practice should occur without an initial screen of the hip joints. That's a pretty strong statement. Are you serious about that? <laughs> yeah, I am. I have to stick by that statement because if we're not aware of, of someone coming in off the street, what their uh, movement capabilities are, then if we don't at least have some boundaries to set up 
that will give us uh, a safe zone, a safety net, if you will, of movements where you know that if I stay between these parameters, right, mm -hmm. if I don't get to do that hip screen or if I'm, if I'm not feeling comfortable with that or if I've just not been introduced to it before, I, I want to give people the, that safety net where they're able to come in and say, if I stay between the, you know, point A and point B, then I'm less likely to have an injury. Being able to screen a hip, um, even if you're just doing, I'm going to show, show when, I, when I teach uh, the, the webinar, a little down and dirty screen that I call, where you can look at people just as they're walking in the door. That will give you information about what their limitations are. And then there are a couple of postures that you can do to, um, uh, I won't say assess since, you know, language is important on a, a scope of service for yoga teaching or um, for yoga therapy. But you can begin to observe where their natural limitations may be mm -hmm. and then know that it's not a good idea to push past those. And I know our, our previous language that we've used, I say prior to the knowledge we have now, really reinforced an extreme that wouldn't be in keeping with, you know, ahimsa, you know, just basic yoga philosophy of saying, if we're not going to if moderation is, is, is good, then the extremes that yoga postures tend to emphasize are the antithesis of that moderation and of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have this um, section in your blog where you're, you notice you're make, making a note of how many of your patients have suffered from unnecessary hip injuries, labral tears, all types of impingement compounding secondary diagnoses such as torn hamstrings, hernias, pelvic pain, all due to yoga practice. Mm -hmm. Is the common denominator just pushing too hard or is it repetitive strain or um, is there a safe zone formula that people can use in their own practice or as teachers to avoid this vast, quite vast range of issues. <laughs> it, is, it is a wide range of issues, and that's why hip, hip di diagnostics of the hip can be um, difficult because you need to, to branch special, specialties in, in mul multiple fields. So in order for me to practice um, as, a, as a specialist with the hip, I also need to be a clinical specialist with pelvic pain, which is a whole other range of postures. So if we look at how we might create that safety net and look at why people are having these injuries, because I have had a lot of people with uh, yoga-based injuries, is to look at it from a biopsychosocial perspective where we have, there are certain physical components that we definitely want to address mm -hmm. um, through a physical screen. Mm -hmm. But there are also intellectual, spiritual um, you know, energetic components that we may think of as the softer side, the more philosophical side, but sometimes it's those, it's those pieces, the language that we use, that we end up falling back towards a dominator model of kind of guru as God and white power of the white coat syndrome type issues where we use a language that is authoritarian instead of collaborative. And language like push, pull, I, I really, when I'm teaching therapists, 
how to develop their own language, their poetic language, which is not overly clinical and antiseptic. I talk to them about not using those aggressive words. And I think teachers need to consider that also. Mm-hmm. Things like hip opening. I've written a couple of blogs on that, yes. that I do wish teachers would recalibrate the language that they are choosing and realize that every word counts. If you tell someone to press their knee into their chest, guess what they're going to do to their hip? And if they have any indication of whether it's sacroiliac joint dysfunction or maybe the, the uh, TFL or the sartorius or the IT band is, is, is not functioning as it should, it can get caught up in the mix of hip impingement as well. There are so many different variables and all it takes is for a teacher to say, press your knee into your chest to do that. So ditching some of those cues would be really yeah. helpful. Right. And instead of pressing people to say, push to f- push further, or if you feel good, then go a step further, is to do some type of um, observational screen that you would lead students in or whoever it is that you're working with, where you can say, um, we need to find a healthy limit. And it's not about flexibility. I I try not to even use that word anymore. I, I do, when I'm teaching and I'm working with a patient, I, I rarely say flexibility. I don't really use stretch, the word stretch. Um, mm-hmm. I also don't tell someone they're tight either mm-hmm. um, or that something is, um, you just need to stretch that out. So that, that, that type of, that type of class, like let's open the hip. Um, when I first Google searched, uh, searched on Google hip opener, I just wanted to see what was out there. And there was nothing on the entire internet that was addressing the negative aspects or the cautionary, telling the cautionary tale of hip opening, which is when I I decided somebody needs to say something and that if we can adjust our language to a a more um, nonviolent collaborative language that empowers the person instead of the teacher being some kind of guru to push them into a situation, it could greatly improve our yoga outcomes and some of the backlash that the yoga community is experiencing because of these extreme postures that are taught can be uh, ameliorated and improved. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful point you're making about the effect of languaging around it because certainly hip opening sounds like something very really desirable. And so you want <laughs> to push a little bit extra to get that really nice open hip that is presented as a goal, which it probably isn't necessarily even for most people, they have the range of motion they have, and that's the end of it. Um, Mm -hmm. It is. And when I'm, when I'm teaching uh, postures in, um, in any setting, but uh, when I'm teaching healthcare providers to use yoga, I use something that uh, I, I wrote about um, in my book called a vector analysis. And the first part of that is making sure that, you've identified the optimal kinematics that a person has available to them. So automatically, if someone comes into yoga class and they have less than optimal kinematics or structure of the joint that you're addressing, you already know you're gonna have a more difficult time with the rest of the analysis. Mm -hmm. The next part is efficient motor patterning, not just firing a muscle, because we know that uh, a brute lift using the bicep can end up hurting the back. So it's not just about brute force. Mm -hmm. It's about the most optimal patterning or efficient motor patterning possible. 
So if someone comes in and they have osteoarthritis already and they're feeling that, then you're going to have, you're layering up challenges, challenges for that individual. So we, the last thing we want to do is just say, do warrior two like this when we don't know what the structure of their mm-hmm. joint is. So then we work on motor patterning. We back out of the range and we work on efficient motor patterning. While we're doing that, I have a lot of uh, people and I've worked with a, a lot of healthcare providers who have genuine, almost PTSD-like experience from being in a yoga class and being pushed. Or even maybe they're in another uh, form of maybe gymnastics or something like that, where they have been pushed by a coach or the teacher to do something that now uh, movement is scary. Mm. Movement is something that they fear. Mm. And we have to get that trust back. As you know, if you lose trust for anything or anyone in a situation, it's, you just can't get that back automatically. Mm-hmm. That is sometimes harder than neuromotor, you know, neuromuscular patterning. Right. And then the last part of that is, let's say someone has a hip injury. Let's go back to the osteoarthritis example. Go back to the osteoarthritis example. They have OA, they know kind of how the progression happened. They're working on it. They're addressing nutrition. They're a little fearful of movement that they really want to go to this cool yoga class. They get in the yoga class. They know they're weak in certain points. So we know motor patterning is a little off. We know they have some fear that automatically affects what happens and their outcomes. And then the last thing is, how does the tissue respond Mm. from a fascial perspective, from a neuro vascular perspective um, and and this this response of the skin in general and the other soft tissue so that's that's four parts of a vector analysis when someone comes in the door and i want to teach them warrior one i have to look at all those things right right and then use language that is partnership based that is me not saying i'm the doctor and you have to do what i say right No. no is to be collaborative with them to help them and empower them to say, I'm in charge of my healthcare. Um, and I'm in charge of my yoga practice. Right. So that, that's my job is to make sure that they don't need me anymore. Yeah. um, They don't come back with another injury. And that's kind of the crux of what we're getting at. Yeah. But I think for yoga teachers, that's also compounded by the fact that most students look to the other students in class as a gauge for what they should be doing and, it's incredibly, I wouldn't say hard, but it takes time to help them make the psychological shift that no, it's really what their body tells them that's the teacher. Um, but in a class setting, there is a transition there that for most people, if you just see a student in a mixed level class every now and then, it's just really, really hard to help them make that shift. It is. I think... Uh, you know, addressing that could be um, you know, when they fill out those forms before they're coming into a class that maybe there's more information that is actually shared from the individual to the teacher so they know a little bit more about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And as a healthcare provider, you would be amazed, even though I have, my intake forms are quite thick. I want to know everything that's going on, previous medical history, medications, diagnostic testing, what's worked in therapy, what hasn't and what their other risk factors are, still someone will come in and forget to tell you they have a cervical fusion, right? Right. (laughs) Or they have osteoporosis in the hip, which means 
there are lots of postures that they should be cautious about so that it's safe for them to move. So it means getting to know students a little bit more. It's a, it's more investment, you know, from a teacher or a therapist standpoint, but in the end, that's why we're doing this anyway, is for relationship and to make people feel safe and empower them. So it's just going to take some more time on, on uh, the teacher's part. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And Ginger, um, we have a course on Yoga U with you on this incredibly important topic. So tell us what you're covering and what people can expect. Well, I wish I had several days to talk about it, I know. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll hit the highlights. <laughs> I want to talk about hip preservation and the surgery that many people are getting now, which is hopefully helping prevent uh, the large number of total hip replacements that are happening right now is hip arthroscopy. It's a small surgery uh, or small scars uh, and incisions and it's a massive surgery. So you have these three, two, three incisions, uh, sometimes more, and you have precautions that are far more stringent and a recovery time that is um, exponentially longer than a hip replacement. However, your outcome is that you don't have those restrictions and that you don't need that revision uh, that a hip replacement requires and you only have, your hip revision, you only have but generally speaking, one hip revision, maybe two if you're lucky and you've got great bones. And after that, you, you're non-ambulatory. You know, you're not going to be able to walk anymore. So hip replacement is a, is a short-term fix that should happen at the end of life um, rather than earlier on. But the point is, what, what we're going over is, uh, at its heart, hip preservation and a way to recalibrate asana, a bit of an asana evolution as I like to call it. So we're gonna discuss hip functioning and how that affects mind-body health. <clears throat> hip structure. When someone comes in, we don't know what the uh, hip morphology or structure of their hip is. What can you do as a teacher? What can we do to, to evolve the yoga postures to make them safe? In absence of uh, an MRA or a non-contrast CT scan, what do we do? How do we screen? Uh, for the hip and maybe self-assess <clears throat> to increase safety. Um, what are some techniques to support um, preservation of the hip that you may use to create safety and create a language and environment uh, of safety? Then we'll go through some things like um, guidelines for asana, teaching cues, that's a big one. Okay. Uh, whether should you say this, should we say that, should we get rid of certain phrases, in order to help people to pull back and self-regulate a little better. And then what kind of boundaries and red flags do you need to look for in yoga instruction? That's important because that will help yoga teachers, uh, yoga therapists, and yoga practitioners, just yoga enthusiasts, people who love yoga, to be able to refer themselves or someone they know to uh, a specialized PT, and then in some cases that PT will refer on to the orthopedic surgeon when they do feel like more testing is actually needed. Mm, interesting. Sounds like a course that should be mandatory in every single <laughs> yoga teacher training program in the country, huh? Yeah, it, it does because the hip is our connecting point for the upper mm. and lower quarter. Right. It's intimately connected to the pelvis. 
where there are sensitive, uh, very sensitive neurological structures there and vascular structures that need to be protected. I consider the pelvis one of the vulnerable structures of the human body, along with um, the, the hands and the feet, things to protect. And uh, mm. so, yeah, I, I really wish everybody could um, take the course on the hip because without, without that, asana tend to fall apart if you don't have the hip to connect at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and for, for that matter, pretty much any sport. I mean, so many people, once they get into the late 50s, 60s, um, have to retire from doing a lot of the things they love to do because the hip starts be, to be an issue. Um, right. And right. God forbid that yoga practice that we love so much should be a contributing factor to that process. Right. And, and to, and I, I say this a lot too, to give, you know, the uh, early yogis a break to cut them some slack. These postures were created for young men and boys. They weren't calibrated for women with completely different pelvic structures. Right. They weren't created with a knowledge of, of what uh, a reconstructed pelvis on a non-contrast CT scan looks like. Um, they didn't have test and measures and all of these things available to them. So now it's just, it's time that we add the science to it and evolve the asana in a way that is compassionate and sustainable for the future. Yeah, yeah. And that is a huge, big uh, evolution that stands before us in terms of refining yoga teacher training and yoga teaching methodology. So I want to we have um, all the yogis out there say a warm thank you to you for all the important work that you're doing in that area because you really are one of the few people who bridges the gap with in-depth yoga training and also um, this incredible resource that you have with your doctor of physical therapy. Thank you. I, I love physical therapy. I love orthopedics. I love systems-based health. I love yoga. And when it all merges and comes together, um, like this in an evidence-based way, it, it changes people's lives. It's incredibly effective and just want to share it with as many people as possible. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ginger. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Bye -bye. Eva. Thanks for having me.